going to go to the Lord's table after we... Let's pray first. Ask Lord's blessing on our service. Lord, we come together today. We praise you for the saving grace that you show to us by your Spirit as you impart to us new life. And Lord, you, you bring us to that place of trust and faith. Bring us to that place of repentance. We understand that our sin is an abomination to you. That every sin deserves eternal damnation, separation from you forever. We thank you, Lord, that you bring us to Christ. You show us him high and lifted up. Lord, as we celebrate together the table today, I pray that, Lord, your spirit would draw us into a sense, a recognition, and just a spirit of worship for what you've done for us. That your body was torn, your blood was shed, that we might live eternally. We thank you that there is salvation in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. As we think about the table, would you just take your Bibles and turn with me to where we will go later in the worship service, uh, to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. Uh, We're going to be looking, we're studying the Gospel of John, and we're not going to get through this entire chapter by no means today talking about being born again. We're going to introduce it and start down this road. Frankly, this is one of the most important chapters in the Bible, this conversation that Jesus has with Nicodemus. We need to cherish it as believers, we need to understand it. We need to be able to share these truths with other people. And I just want to draw your attention to the verse we all know as we think of the table today. It's verse 16. For God so loved the world. Now that word cosmos sometimes can mean the planet. God created the world. That's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about the people that inhabit the planet, us sinners. God loved us so much, he gave his one and only son, that whoever would, what? Believe in him. Would not, what? Perish. But would have, what? Eternal life. What a verse that is. God so loved you, God so loved me, that he gave his only son, that by my faith and trust in him, relying on him alone, I'm not going to perish. I'm saved. I've got eternal life. If you've understood that gospel, you've been born again, we invite you to partake with us. You may be a member of Emmanuel Bible Church. You may not be. That's not the point. The point is, if you are in Christ, you are in his body. So we invite you to partake with us. It's important you remind yourself, we are not saved by partaking of this sacrament. It is a part of our salvation in that in it we remember Christ, but it is not the means by which we are saved. 
by no means. It is by what Christ did once for all. When he died upon that cross, this is now a breaking of bread when we remember. And we worship him. If you're his child, you know him, we invite you to come to the table with us. And so as the piano is being played this morning, um, as uh, we have some remembrance, we want you to serve yourself. And then I'll just simply come back. We'll, we'll open our elements and partake together. But let's ask the Lord to bless um, the breaking of bread today. Lord, we thank you that your body was torn, your blood was shed to save us from our sin. As we remember that today, Lord, give us, give us we pray, a spirit of worship to just fall before you and to, to, to cry out before you, Lord, you alone are worthy. And we thank you in Jesus' name. For I received from the Lord what I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took the bread, he broke it, he said, this is my body, it is for you, do this and remember me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Take your Bibles and turn with me to John. Last week we finished up chapter 2, but we're going to begin reading at the end of chapter 2 and go through chapter 3, verse 15. Then we'll look to the Lord in a word of prayer. John chapter 2, verse 23. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name. When they saw all these miracles that he was doing. But on his part, Jesus did not entrust himself to them. He did not believe in them. Remember, we looked at that play in words. The reason, he knew all people and he needed no one to testify about man. For he himself knew what was in man. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees, and his name was Nicodemus. He was a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night. He said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, 
For no one can do these signs that you are doing unless God is with him. Pause with me for a minute there. This really gives to us the initial judgment of the Sanhedrin concerning who Jesus is. The Sanhedrin has sat, they have examined evidence about who Jesus is, and they have come to grips with this. They've said, this is what their initial finding is. We don't know how to dispute what you're doing. We know you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you are doing unless God is with him. But it is from this moment on that Jesus will begin to challenge their assertion. And basically what Jesus is going to say to these guys through the rest of the book of John is what you think I am is not sufficient. I am not just a teacher come from God. I am God. And he's going to challenge this assertion. He does it in chapter 5. In chapter 5, they come, and they're having a conversation, and they're attacking him, and he says, before Abraham was, I am. They're so ticked, they want to kill him. In a later point of the book, I think it's chapter 8, Jesus is going to say to them, I and my father are one. And they're going to take up stones to stone him for blasphemy. And so from here on out, what these men have asserted about who Jesus is, is going to be shown to them to be an insufficient statement of who he is. He is not a teacher just come from God, for no one can do these things unless God is with him. No, he is God come in the flesh who is now acting in time. Rabbi, we know your teacher come from God. No one can do these miracles that you are doing unless God is with him. Jesus answers him. Amen, amen. I am saying to you, unless one is born again or born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus is going to ask two questions. Those two questions, I believe, are sincere. I don't think, I don't think Nicodemus is being stupid here. I don't think Nicodemus is kind of being snarky. Amen, amen. I am saying to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus says to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered him, Amen, amen. I am saying to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. 
the Spirit breathes. Your translation may say wind, but remember that's the word pneuma or spirit. The Spirit breathes where He wishes. You hear the sound, but you don't know where he is coming from and where he is going, and this is the way it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus asks another question. So how can this be? Well, how how can this happen? If this has to happen, if I have to be born again, if you have to be born again, how does it happen? How can it happen? That's a fundamental question. Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you don't understand this? Oh, man, oh, man, I say to you, we speak of what we know. We testify to what we've seen. But you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you of earthly things and you don't believe, how can you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must, notice that must, the Son of Man be lifted up. In order that, or following that, as a result of that lifting up, Whoever then trusts in Him will have eternal life. Join me in prayer. Lord, we say, how can this be? We look at our children down the pew. Little ones born into our homes. And we say, Lord, how can they be saved? We say of family members that we have prayed for for years. How can they be saved? Our co-workers, our neighbors. Lord, how can you save them? How does this happen? Lord, we long to know. What did you tell us in your word? Teach us today. Holy Spirit, this is a weighty passage. Lord, I don't want to be in your way. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would breathe where you want. That Holy Spirit, you would breathe in power upon dead hearts. Some that may be in this room, some that may be watching online some that may hear us on the radio. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would take your word that you have breathed out and you would use it to breathe new life into broken lives. We cannot do it. Holy Spirit, you must. Open your word to our minds. In your name, amen. How can these things be? Now, I want to just cover a couple of technical areas at the start of our study. 
We're talking about being born again. Another word that gets thrown out there a lot in this conversation is a word regeneration. Okay, regeneration. Regeneration speaks of the process by which someone is born again. There's new life. So sometimes you hear those two terms, regeneration and born again. There are three basic views of what we just read, and I'm just going to hit them quick, and I'm not going to belabor these, but you need to think about them because they are important. The first one would be kind of the sacramental view, baptismal regeneration. Now, when you read this, and he says, you must be born of water and the Spirit, when you read their water, what he's talking about is baptism, and that God uses the process of baptism through the church and the keys of the kingdom that have been given to the church, it is through the waters of baptism that a soul is awakened and thus faith begins or faith germinates, baptismal regeneration. I don't want to go into this morning kind of a debunking of that view, but obviously it has huge problems and obviously we don't see that in Scripture as we study the Scripture, and, uh, but it isn't a one that is widely held in Christendom, that it is through baptism that regeneration begins. Second view is this, decisional regeneration. Now, this one's going to hit a little closer to home. That belief precedes and causes regeneration. It's kind of like, I've heard the gospel so many times, I've been in church all my life, but I just ain't quite ready yet. When I get good and ready, I will decide when I am saved. Is that in the New Testament? Decisional regeneration has been a widespread teaching in the evangelical faith that has plagued evangelicalism and has led to many false assumptions that someone is saved. Decisional regeneration. That the power is in me to just decide whenever to be saved. That's like a baby in the womb deciding I'm going to be born when I want to be born. Do they got anything to do with it? What did it say in John chapter 1 verse 13 when we studied that? As many as received him, to them he gave the power to become the children of God who were born, not of the will of the flesh, not of the will of the man, but of who? God. We'll come back to that one. Now, we're not going to go to seed on it today. We will talk about that one again. The third one is, this is my term. I don't know what else to call it, so it's this. Spirit-centric regeneration. That it is the spirit who initiates and consummates the new birth at a time and a place that he chooses. 
Last night, Amy and I sat down on, on, on the television. I got this Skylink thing now, or what, Starlink thing now. So I got internet at the house. So we have Pure Flix, and we watched a movie on Pure Flix about C.S. Lewis. It was actually pretty good, called The Most Reluctant Convert. Have you seen that? Anybody seen that? The Most Reluctant Convert. Good, good story of his conversion is what it is. God's spirit was working in this dude who was a rank atheist, who had apostatized from the faith, was drawing him to faith. And he talked about when his conversion actually happened. His brother Warney and him were going to the zoo. He said, when we started the trip to the zoo, I did not believe in Jesus. When we got to the zoo, I did. And how it happened, I do not know. C.S. Lewis didn't choose the time or place. God did. It is important we understand that. You say, Tim, you're starting to sound like a hyper-Calvinist. I'm not. But you know what I am? And the longer I've been in Christ and the longer I've walked with Christ, the more I'm becoming a big godder. That ain't a title. But it's this. God is big enough to save. Big God. We believe in a big God. A big God. And he acts. And he does so to save. Salvation is of the Lord. Now, let's go into this text and let's consider some things about the text. First of all, here's the fundamental question. The fundamental question is, if I must be born again, then how can it happen? I imagine Nicodemus is thinking that. I imagine you're thinking that because we all have loved ones, right? If people I know and love, my kids, my co-workers, my friends, everyone has to be born again, then how can it happen? What does he say? The Spirit blows or breathes where he chooses. How does that happen? We've got to explore that. But here's the point I want to make as we begin this. God is not dependent on my flimsy, persuasive words to get you into the kingdom. And God is not dependent on you to get your kids into the kingdom. He will use you. But he is not dependent on it. God does it. And when we come to terms with that, you know what that does? It drives us to a radical reorientation of our methodology. Because instead of thinking that this is something I have to create in someone else, and i got to get the words just right, and i got to make them pray just the right prayer, and we got to do it this way, it's not going to happen. What it does is it drives us to a total dependence on God to pray, to pray for others, to be faithful to speak, but to recognize that God must 
cause it to grow? This is the fundamental question. How can it happen? Now, there is an opening contrast. Notice with me the opening contrast. In chapter 2, verse 23 to 25, we had people who see the signs and they hear the speech of Jesus. They see the signs, they hear the speech. Some of them believe, right? You saw that? Some of them believe. They see the signs and the speech of Jesus and some of them believe, but... Some of them are saved and some are not. Even the demons believe, right? So, signs and speech of Jesus. People believe in Him, but those who are believing Him out of that group, He does not entrust Himself to some of them because He knows what's in them. They never knew Him. But some of them are truly born again. What's the difference? What's the difference? What's the difference between the one who is saved and the one who is not? Well, we would say the quality of their faith. But what makes one faith qualitatively different than the other? It's really going to get down to chapter 3, verse 15. It's what are you looking at? Are you putting your faith in a Jesus who can do miracles who's like a genie in a bottle, who's going to meet all your needs, or are you trusting in a Jesus who died for your sin? As Jesus lifted up, so must someone believe on him. It's not just enough to see the miracles, to just hear his words, and to think like the Jews do in John chapter 6, oh, he can do this, we're going to make him the king. He'll throw off the tyranny of Rome. And they believe in Jesus that he can do that. That's not why he came. They don't see the kingdom of heaven. What do you got to believe in? That Jesus died for me, a rotten sinner. That he bore my sin to the cross, and my faith is in the cross of Christ. That is the thing that is qualitatively different about the one who was truly born again and the one who isn't. Now... When we look at this and we go into it, there are some questions that we want to answer as we run through this text. Here they are. What does it mean to be born again? What does it mean to be born again? If I asked you, what does it mean? If you've got to be born again to get into heaven, what does that mean? We better nail that one down. We better nail it down. Because my friend, what did he say here? If you are not born again, you are not going where? To heaven. So this is an important thing to nail down. What does it mean to be born again? Secondly, who is it for? Okay, who needs to be born again? Who is it for? Where is it from? What does it do? You ever get something in the mail and you wonder, what does this thing do? What does this do? What does it do? How does it come? How can you tell? That's pretty important too. How can I tell I'm born again? Is it because I prayed a prayer? Because I walked down an aisle? Nothing against walking down an aisle. How can I tell? 
what is this thing to be born again? So who is it for? Chapter 3, verse 16, it is for who? Everyone. Everyone. Not just for the Jews, it's for the world. It's for everyone. Where is it from? It's from above. It's from God. It's from heaven. What does it do? It begets a new life. Creates new life where there's death. New life comes. How does it come? It comes by the Spirit through the Word. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23, it says this, Having been born again. Peter says this, Having been born again, not of perishable seed or seed that perishes, but of imperishable. What is the imperishable seed? By the Word of God that lives and abides forever. Think of what he says there. Having been born again. Not by perishable seed. By seed that never perishes. And that seed that never perishes is the living and abiding Word of God. For all flesh is as grass. And all the glory of man like the flower of the fields fades. The flower fades. But the word of our God, what? Stands forever. It abides forever. It is the imperishable seed by which we are born again. So how does the new birth come? It comes by the Spirit through the word. How can I tell? That, of course, answers baptismal regeneration. Because Peter didn't say, having been born again by getting dunked in a tank. Peter didn't say, having been born again by getting water sprinkled on your head. Peter said, having been born again through what? The Word of God. Very important we note that. How can I tell? What happens? I'm perfect now. How about you? Eh, wrong, wrong answer. No, I'm not. Just hang around me through the week. You'll find out I'm not perfect how can I tell I've been born again? Because now there is a complete renouncing of any faith in myself, and instead there is a total reliance on Jesus as the one who atoned for my sin. That now there's an understanding in my life that all of my eggs are in the basket that have the name Jesus Christ on it. And my trust is Him alone. Nothing with me. That's how I can tell. That's how I can tell when someone's born again. Because when I ask them, if you died today and you stood at the pearly gates and Peter said, why should I let you in? If you answer and you say, well, because I've been a pretty good guy, eh, that don't work. How can I tell? Because when I am asked that question, I'm going to say something like this. I'm a rotten bum, and I deserve to go to hell, but Jesus died for me, and I'm trusted in him alone. That's how you tell someone's born again. Who is it for? This is what we look at. Now, when we look at this one, you know, sometimes people think, well, that born again thing, that's for emotional type people, right? The people that always have their hands in the air. They're the ones who are born again, right? Emotional people, they get that experience. The rest of us, us intellectual types, eh, not so much. Is that who it's for? 
Is it just for the emotional types? Is it for the people that are on the ups and downs all the time? Or, or maybe it's for the broken types. Uh, the people who were once a drug addict. Or, or they were an alcoholic. And they really screwed up. And then while they're in jail for that DUI, they come to Jesus and they're born again. That's who it's for. It's for that person. Well, is it for them? Well, yeah. It's also for the emotional types. But who is it for? Who is this thing for? Now, this is important when we think about it because the person of Nicodemus gives us a clue. Let's think about Nicodemus for a minute. Nicodemus was number one of what? Tells us in the text. Starts out. He is a Pharisee. We'll talk about that in a minute. Number two, he is a ruler of the Jews. You say, I thought Rome ruled the Jews. So what's this? He's a ruler of the Jews. What does that mean? And he comes to Jesus by night. When we think about who this thing is for, we need to think about the context of who Jesus is having this conversation with. He is having a conversation with a man who is, first of all, a Pharisee. Number two, he is a ruler of the Jews. And then he comes to Jesus by night. So let's think about this. Um, we talked about the initial formal declaration by the court of the Jews. We won't go there now. Let's think about the Pharisees for a minute. Who are the Pharisees? Well, when you read the Gospels, you come to grips with these different groups that are a part of Judaism. They were parties. Now, when you left off your Bible reading through the year, and you got through the book of Malachi, and then you jump into the Gospel of Matthew, when you were in the Old Testament, there weren't any Pharisees. There weren't any Sadducees. So where did these guys come from? Well, during the intertestamental period, that period of time between the closing of the canon in the Old Covenant and then the coming of Christ, there were a lot of developments in Judaism that happened in what we call the intertestamental period. One of the things that happens is there is this growth, a resurgence of Judaism, and in that resurgence of Judaism, there is a group that forms who call themselves the Pharisees. There's also a group that called themselves the Sadducees. Now, we know from the Gospels, the Sadducees didn't believe in what? The resurrection. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in a lot. They didn't believe in anything that was supernatural. And so you can always remember them. They were sad, you see, because they didn't believe that they would live after death. Right? So they're sad. So they're the Sadducees. But there were the Pharisees and the Sadducees. There's other groups as well, the Herodians, the Zealots the Essenes, there's scribes, there's lawyers. We meet all these people in the Gospels. Now, when we think about Nicodemus as a Pharisee, the word Pharisee literally is a word which speaks of their desire for holiness. And so they looked at themselves as separated. This is actually what the term means. They called themselves the separated ones. They lived in such devotion to God that they had separated themselves from that which was corrupting and that which was unclean. But that didn't mean that they lived in a monastery. 
No, they lived in the cities like everybody else. And in fact, these guys who were Pharisees okay, came about in the intertestamental period, but they were, this is very important you understand this one right here. Jesus and the Pharisees have tons of interaction, and Jesus always goes for the jugular, doesn't he, with these guys? Always. But Jesus has more in common with the Pharisees than any other group in Judaism. That's one of the reasons he goes after them. But these guys were, these aren't like the monks walking around, you know, and got bare feet and shaved heads and everything else. No, these guys, the Pharisees, by the way, there were about 6,000 of them in Palestine during the time of Christ. They were well-respected community leaders. They were business professionals. They led the local synagogues. They had advanced training in the written law and the oral traditions of contemporary Judaism. When Jesus goes at the jugular for these guys, everybody's like, oh my goodness. These are well-respected community leaders. They are, most of them, wealthy and business professionals. They're not some subset that everybody just looked at, like, oh, those Pharisees, I wish they'd get out of here. Ooh, I don't like being around them guys. They're the separated ones. No, when people saw them, they looked up at them. Secondly, what was the Sanhedrin? Now, when we say they were, he was a ruler of the Jews, it is talking about this body in first century Judaism, the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin comes from the Greek word synedrion, which means to sit together. Thus, it speaks of a council. The Council of the Jews was the highest ruling body in New Testament Judaism. The highest ruling body. The Romans were above them, but the Romans had very wisely told local governments that they could do basically anything as long as they did not go against an edict of Rome, and then as long as they did not carry out the death penalty. That had to get permission through Rome. That is why the Sanhedrin, although they condemn Jesus, they do not crucify him. Rome does. It's important to note that, but they are the highest ruling body in Judaism. There were greater and lesser Sanhedrins, by the way, So the greater Sanhedrin sits in Jerusalem, but in every town and village across the land, there were smaller councils that met in individual towns. It would almost be like we would think of as in America, there's the Supreme Court. And then you have district courts and city courts and other courts that carry out lesser rulings. All of them working up ultimately through a chain of command to the Supreme. The Sanhedrin, the greater Sanhedrin that sits in Jerusalem, is like our Supreme Court, essentially. 
respectively, the greater Sanhedrin had 71 members, the lesser Sanhedrins had 23. 71 guys in this Sanhedrin, and Nicodemus is a part of it. The genesis of this whole thing is in Exodus 18 and Numbers 11. In Exodus 18, we have Moses' father-in-law, a guy named Jethro. You can really read that, I'm sure. Numbers 11 is this. Here's the story. The children of Israel are complaining. Oh my goodness, they've never done that before. Right? They've never done that. Oh, they're complaining again. You know what they're complaining about this time in Numbers 11? How we are sick and tired of this stupid manna. That's all we get to eat. Oh, we wish we had all the meat we used to have in Egypt. And all the garlics and the cucumbers. I'm sure they pickled those cucumbers. Who would want to eat a raw one? My wife would. She likes them. Anyway, they're complaining. So Moses says to the Lord, Why have you brought this trouble down on me, your servant? Are you angry with me? Why do you burden me with all these people? Did I give birth to them? Is that why you said to me, carry them in your breast as a nursing woman carries a baby to the land that you swore to give their fathers? Where, I, where can I get meat to give to all these people? For they are crying to me, give us meat to eat. I can't carry all these people by myself. <clears throat> they are too much for me. If you're going to treat me like this, then please just kill me. Sounds like Elijah, doesn't it? Just kill me. If you're pleased with me, and put me out of my misery. Right? Put me out of my misery. The Lord says to Moses, Bring me 70 men from Israel who are known to you as what? By the way, this is the genesis of New Testament church government as well. Bring me 70 men from Israel known to you as elders and officers of the people. In other words, they're already serving as elders and officers of the people. And he says, now you find the best 70. Take them to the tent of meeting and have them stand there with you. And I will come down and I will speak with you there. I will take some of the spirit that is on you and I will put that spirit on them. And they will help you bear the burden of the people so that you do not have to bear it all by yourself or else I'm going to have to zap you and put you out of your misery. That's why there's three ellipses there. Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord. He brought 70 men from the elders of the people. He had them stand around the tent. The Lord descended in the cloud, spoke to him. He took some of the spirit that was on Moses. He placed that spirit on the 70 elders. As the spirit rested on them, they prophesied. But they never did it again. Now, in the Jewish Sanhedrin, there are 71. Why? Because if you add 1 to 70, you have what, all you math magicians? <laughs> 71. So who's that last one? A guy named Moses. So who is the one guy who stands with the 70 elders in the Sanhedrin during the days of Jesus? It's the high priest. So it is 71. That's how you get to the Sanhedrin. Now, 
What are the qualifications to be on this court? Number one, you had to be a Hebrew. You had to have either Aaronic or Levitical descent. You could be a common Jew as long as you had a clear genealogic title. You know, the Jews always looked at their genealogies. But what did Paul say? It don't matter, matter diddly squat to God. That's what you see in the book of Timothy. But to be on the Sanhedrin, you had to be a Hebrew. You had to come from either the priestly line or the Levitical lineage, or you had to have a clear genealogical title that could show your ability to sit on that court because you were 100% Jew. You had to be advanced in age. That's a nice way of saying you got to be an old guy. You had to serve in every tier of the lower courts, and you would have had to distinguish yourself among your peers. You would have to be well-versed in both the written Torah and the oral traditions of Judaism. You would have to have a firm grasp on all the sciences and knowledge of the day. That's in their writings. You didn't just know religion. You knew it all. You had to be a skilled linguist in Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic, and most other neighboring languages. And you had to have a faultless reputation among the people. That's Nicodemus. Nicodemus, this guy that's talking to Jesus, is one of the most highly respected Jews of the day. Okay, he's not just some old guy who doesn't know nothing. When you consider the millions of Jews of the day of Christ, this guy, Nicodemus, is among others one of the most distinguished Jews of that time. He had risen to a place of leadership that only 70 of his contemporaries had attained to. And unlike the high priest, he had done so through personal merit, not patronage. He did not get on that court because of his bloodline. He got on that court because he had mastered those things on that list. This guy is a highly respected individual. So who is it for? Just the emotional types? Just the broken types? No. Nicodemus, you got to get born again. Nicodemus came there to examine Jesus. And Jesus turns it around and is now examining him. As we bring it to a close, why did he come at night? You know, some people make a big deal out of this, like Nicodemus just, he don't want people to see him talking to Jesus. Eh, wrong answer. That's not it. This guy is a highly respected dude. He's not hiding anything. He goes to talk to Jesus because Jesus is a busy man and so is he. Every day except the Sabbath, Nicodemus sits at court in the temple on the Sanhedrin. He's a busy man. 
He goes to Jesus at night because it's a little bit more of a relaxed environment. Jesus has the time. I'm sure they're sitting down over a cup of coffee. And they have a talk. There is an interesting contrast in the gospel. In John chapter 3, Nicodemus comes from the night to the light. In John 13, it tells us Judas goes from the light and he goes out into the night. says that specifically. He goes out into the night. You may be in the night. If you come to the light, you will be saved. But my friend, if you are sitting here and you have been exposed to the light and you reject it, you will go out into the night. There's a gravestone at a parish church in England that says this. Charles Simeon was a pastor who did a funeral in the church in 1793 for his friend, a man named John Berridge. The epitaph that is written on the gravestone in that parish church was written there because John Berridge wanted it written there. So that everybody that walked by his grave and read his epitaph would know a truth. This is what it says. Here lies the earthly remains of John Berridge, the pastor of Everton. Reader, are you born again? Reader, are you born again? There is no salvation without the new birth. I was born in sin, February 1716. I remained ignorant of my fallen state until 1730. I lived proudly on faith and works for salvation until 1754. I became a pastor at Everton in 1755. In 1756, I fled to Jesus and was saved. I fell asleep in Christ on January 22nd 1793. He was a pastor. And he was not born again. But he fled to Christ. And when he fell asleep, he fell asleep in Christ. Reader, Are you born again? Let's pray. Lord, as we study these verses, we understand, Lord, that we are dead in sin. 
There are many people in this room who have experienced this new birth. Maybe they were a broken person. Maybe they were a religious person. They saw Jesus high and lifted up. And they put their trust in him and him alone. And they were saved. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would lift the eyes of some person from themselves to Jesus. We're going to sing a song as we close. It's called Our Living Hope. It's got great words to it. You may or may not know it well. But with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, I don't often take the time to try to just ask you to come to terms. And I'm not going to come around and wrench your arm. And we're not going to sing 20 verses just as I am. And I'm not going to even ask you to walk an aisle or anything. I'm just going to ask you that while we're singing this song, if you are struggling with this, that you would just acknowledge that to God. Just simply in honesty, acknowledge to him, Lord, I want to be born again. I want to be saved. You, you don't need, my friend, to just talk to me or Matt or one of the elders, although we're always here for you and want to do that. You must do business with God like Nicodemus did. And my God is big enough to save you in your bedroom if that's where it happens. And he will hold you fast. But you must pursue him. Lord, give that desire by your spirit. So we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we stand our closing songs together?
Father, Lord, we thank you for you truly, you are our hope. There's nothing we can place our hope and our trust in other than you to know that we have eternal life. For those who may not know it, Lord, today, I pray, Lord, that your spirit will continue to impress upon them the truth of needing you. And for those that do know of the truth, may we be faithful in sharing that truth with others. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.